Chapter 2 of The Greater Life and Work of Christ. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adrian Stevens. The Greater Life and Work of Christ by Alexander Patterson. Chapter 2, Part 1. The Word, Christ in Creation. Creation was the work of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is not only intimated by the plural forms of the names and pronouns applied to God in the account of creation in Genesis, but can also be inferred from the spiritual work of regeneration, of which it is a type and the specific statements as to the part of each person of the Godhead. Over against the three divine persons in creation we see three distinct parts, the production of life, matter, and arrangement. Quote, a threefold unity, namely a unity of power, a unity of form or family, and a unity of substantial composition, does pervade the whole living world. End quote. Footnote. Huxley. Lay sermons. End footnote. We are instinctively led to ask if there was not an allotment of these parts in creation to the several persons of the Godhead, we find it is so in the spiritual sphere. God the Father is the first great cause. From him came all existences. He is the Father of the spirits. To God the Father we must attribute also the creation of elementary matter. Whatever view may be taken of the subsequent process, this is essential to every system of science and philosophy. No theory has ever been proposed to account for the origin of existences. This is the statement of the first verse of Genesis, which is literally, quote, In the beginning God created the substance of the heavens and the substance of the earth. End quote. The Holy Spirit is expressly declared in many scriptures as the author of life. We know well this is true of spiritual life, but it is also true of all other forms of life. His sphere as the life-giver extends over all forms of life. He is the author of all psychical and even organic life. Each living thing can say, quote, The Spirit of God hath made me, and in the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. End quote. Not only so, but that strange form of life which resides in inorganic things, which we call force, comes from the great life and force-giver. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Quote. Quote, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Quote. Quote, by his Spirit the heavens are garnished. This leaves, as the sphere of the special work of Christ, arrangement or formation of all things. This is Christ's own account of his work. Quote, then was I by him as a master workman. End quote. We have seen that Christ was the embodiment of the divine wisdom. All God's workings also are through him. He was and is God's great executive. He takes that which God has created and from it forms all things, material, psychical, and spiritual. This threefold work of the Godhead is seen in the creation of man. Quote, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. End quote. Christ took the substance already created and formed man, and then into this formed body through him the Holy Spirit. Quote, breathed the breath of life. End quote. So in the spiritual work of Christ he takes the men whom thou hast given me, forms them into followers, disciples, and apostles, and into these afterward the Holy Spirit, on the day of Pentecost, breathes life. The work of God and Christ is so spoken of by the Apostle, quote, There is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we unto him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we through him. End quote. 
we should clearly distinguish between these three great stages in the creation of the universe and our world. The first was the formation of the material universe, of which our world is a part, and doubtless formed at the same time and in the same way. The second great stage was the creation of the primeval order of life, which geology reveals to us. The third stage was the six days' work spoken of in Genesis. The first stage was the formation of the material inorganic universe. Of this, Scripture says, quote, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. End quote. How God made the universe we are not told. It was no doubt a long series of ages. Christ laboured by what we call natural processes. The description of the workings of Christ in the forming of the universe of primeval matter is given in many places. Quote, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. End quote. Quote, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? End quote. The whole of this description conveys the idea of a careful, systematic execution. It is the work of the builder constructing a great edifice, and this is the figure everywhere applied to the construction of the earth. Quote, it is he that buildeth his chambers in the heaven, and founded his vault upon the earth. End quote. Job, the oldest book of scripture, is particularly rich in accounts of the cosmical work of Christ. It is implied in Scripture, if not directly stated, that angels were created before other things or beings. Christ first surrounded himself with assistance. It is taught in Scripture that angels are used in all realms of divine operations. They assist in the administering of the affairs of divine government and are ministering spirits to God's people. They are also used in the operations of nature. Quote, and of the angels, he saith, he maketh his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. End quote. The passage in the creation psalm, from which this is a quotation, is thus rendered there, quote, who maketh winds his messengers, his ministers a flaming fire. End quote. Here, then, is a great revelation of personal, supernatural, intelligent beings operating the forces we call natural. All this agrees with the discoveries of science. We see that our globe, which is undoubtedly a specimen of the universe, was formed by the operation of the great forces of nature, especially fire, all in an intelligent manner working to the great end we see displayed in the perfect adaptation of the earth to its purpose. This makes creation comprehensible. Here is a succession of sufficient causes. First, God by a certain act producing the element of all substance, force and life. Second, Christ forming these by means of intelligent subordinates, working through these great natural agencies into the manifold forms we see in earth and air, and sea, and sky. Olshausen writes on this, quote, The agency of angels has reference principally to the physical part of existence. They are the living supports and springs of motion to the world, for which the modern mechanical view of the world has substituted what are called powers of nature. End quote. There occurs in the record various expressions describing the divine operation, such as and God said, and God created, and God made. They are not synonymous. They imply varying forms of operation, sometimes creative fiat, again by gradual formation, at times by the operation of powers by us as yet undiscovered, and again by such forces as fire to us well known. Having finished the earth to a condition capable of supporting life, Christ begins the second great part of storing the earth with necessary materials and provisions for the comfort of the race during the ages to come. 
we see in this old world a vast population of plants and animals they were monstrous races they were evidently not made for beauty or admiring contemplation as is nature to-day nor were they fit for the association of human beings looked at for themselves there appears to be no reason for their existence but they lived not for themselves but for the race and world to come their mission was to accumulate wealth and leave it to others to them we owe our vast supplies of coal oil gas and other products some of which are doubtless not yet discovered here was christ in prevenant grace he toils ages to build the house and ages longer to fill its treasure vaults with precious metal and still more ages to fill its cellars with fuel for winters which have not yet commenced their icy rounds and illuminating substances for darkness not yet existing and all for a race not yet created but on which he has set his heart with the love of infinite desire the work of the monstrous fauna and flora being done they are overwhelmed in world-wide overthrows and their remains hermetically sealed for the use of those who shall need them the state of the earth at the close of this old age is described in the revised version as waste and void this conveys a very different idea from that given in the authorized version the expression there is without form and void the latter describes an unformed world while the former an earth formed but in ruins as we have seen the earth was formed and had been used for many ages the state described by the words in the revised version quoted above is the true one it is that of a world in ruins the earth was a globe as it is to-day before the six days work began the geologic strata were as we see them save for subsequent upheavals in the formation of continents and islands it was however covered with water and enswathed in clouds and darkness it was the same state in which the prophet saw the earth after the desolating judgments of the last day Quote, i beheld the earth and lo it was waste and void and the heavens and they had no light it is important to remember this as we now come to consider the subsequent work of creation the six days work then was commenced on an earth finished as to its form and internal contents long before this period began the word day is used in the first two chapters of genesis in four different meanings the time of daylight twenty-four hours each of the six days and the whole creation age examining the six days work from this point of view we see that while we cannot tell how long each day was no long periods were necessary under any view of creation to affect all described in the record why should a long age be required to produce light the world is flooded with light every morning in less than an hour it was doubtless some special kind of light for it is recorded god saw the light that it was good the conditions were different and the operation also yet whether by those operations we call natural or those we call supernatural the lifting or dissipation of the surrounding vapours to permit the entrance of light sufficient for the growth of the lower form of plants does not seem an incredible event as to lead to incredulity upon the part of any one believing in god the second day's work was the production of atmospheric air by the combination of its constituent gases or its diffusion by the lifting of the clouds of vapours which rested upon the waters we see this done upon a lesser scale at the breaking up of every storm the third day's work was the separation of a portion of land by its elevation above the surrounding waters and the infusion of the germs of plant life the beginnings of life were no doubt small as is the beginning of all life still all this calls for no very extended period upheavals of great portions of the earth's surface have often occurred in a short time while the sproutings of a spring day are a greater exhibit than this first 
and probably limited growth. The work of the fourth day related to the sun and planets. These globes are formed of the same constituents, as the spectroscope tells us, and therefore of the same origin as the earth. This was not therefore the creation of the solar bodies. The record tells us what the work of the fourth day, which related to them, was, quote, let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven and it was so the word light is literally light-bearer the latest deliverance of science as to the sun is that it is a dark body surrounded by luminous photosphere or flame or, in the language of scripture, a light-bearer. Whether this photosphere was then produced, or its rays were then permitted to penetrate the atmosphere of earth, still further, is immaterial. It was then established for light. Sufficient attention has not been given to the remainder of the record, wherein it is declared they were appointed for signs, seasons, days, and years. The varying seasons and the years are produced by the inclination of the Earth's axis, as is well known. But there was a time, science tells us, when there was no varying in the seasons. There were, at the poles, regions of perpetual winter, as now, and at the equator, a region of perpetual heat, as now, and between these, regions of different but unvarying temperature, but there were no annual changes anywhere. This indicates a position of the Earth's axis parallel to that of the Sun. The time came when, so science tells us, the Earth's axis was suddenly changed. The climatic zones were therefore modified and became as they are today, or nearly so. There is no want of harmony here between science and the Bible. If this was the work of the fourth day, and there is so much reason to think so, it too could have occurred in a comparatively short time. The creation of the higher forms of plants and animals in land and sea, suitable to such a changed climatic condition, was the work of the fifth and sixth days, ending in the creation of man. It is interesting to notice that the six days' work lies in two corresponding periods of three days each, the last three corresponding to the first three, in the first day, light is created. In the fourth, the heavenly luminaries are adjusted to their office. In the second day, the waters and air are produced, or rather gathered into their respective spheres. In the fifth day, fish and birds are created. The third day, land is separated, and in the sixth, the land animals and man are created. If we could see creation in actual operation, we would probably see all being done as naturally as the operations of nature about us every day. There are forces, of which we know but little, whereby mind acts upon matter in what is to us a mysterious manner. We realise in our own bodies this strange acting of the psychical upon the physical, and even stranger operations of mind upon outside matter. The great mind which pervades all the universe could act on the surrounding substance in entire harmony with laws to us unseen and unknown. When the Creator said, Let there be light, let the waters bring forth, let the earth bring forth, there accompanied these commands an energy which carried them into effect. The uniformity of nature shows one great whole produced by one great mind. Life is the seed and nucleus of the physical surrounding substance. Given this germ of life, and all things are possible, here may we study the type by the antitype. The inbreathing of the Holy Spirit is the beginning of that new life which develops into the babe in Christ, grows into the youth, and finally reaches the measure of the stature of the full-grown man in Christ. At Pentecost, we see a spiritual work parallel to that of creation. There are the same phenomena, the light, the wind, the earthquake, all referring us to the old creation as a type of the new. 
by that one great inbreathing there were imparted to the subjects of the divine power the germs of all divine gifts and graces so in creation there was by the same breath or word the infusion into air and earth and sea the germs of the countless forms of life each coming to maturity under the divine law of its being which has governed it ever since there is an added clause to all the fiats of creation and it was so this means more than the taking place of the events commanded Quote, the particle or the adjective rather never loses the primary idea of fixedness establishment order and it was so rather and it became forever fixed established End quote. footnote long commentary on genesis and footnote the fact that creation is one of the types of the spiritual work of christ makes it important and absolutely necessary to notice what it was it is thus defined in scripture quote, by faith we understand that the worlds have been framed by the word of god so that what is seen hath not been made out of things which do not appear End quote. there is no preceding life from which the new creation comes in the earth's former state there was a monstrous order of things utterly unfit for the use of man it was suddenly and completely destroyed as scripture and geology agree in showing so in the spiritual work of christ there is a killing before a making alive quotes, mortification before vivification both these divine works are from above it is as true of a world as it is of a man each must be born again regeneration is distinctly stated in scripture as a creation quote, if any man is in christ there is a new creation end quote. the regenerate are created in christ after the image of him that created him created in righteousness seeing then that the creation is a type and illustration of the spiritual work of christ in the soul and in the world it makes a radical difference what the work of the six days was indeed this is the great line of division and conflict to-day between the adherents of the biblical account and those who reject it this line of division extends as is inevitable to spiritual truth and therefore is the line between evangelical and heterodox views it affects all philosophy and sociology as well as all theology indeed there is scarcely a range of human thinking which is not vitally affected by the view taken of the work described in the first chapters of genesis it is for this reason that space is given here to the most prevalent and unscriptural opposing theories the theory which confronts the scriptural narrative and the spiritual process alike is evolution if this was a method of creation it is also the spiritual method for the one is the scriptural type of the other if this is the case then man is not guilty he is simply imperfect human nature is not in ruins it is in process of formation both man and world contain within themselves the power and potency of every form of life all that is needed are the proper conditions and the world and mankind by development will attain to the kingdom of god religion itself was development which came because man found it necessary all religions are good christianity being the best so far reached by man but he still advances and other and better faiths are to come christianity or much of it may be laid aside as we have laid aside paganism the ultimate man will by his own unaided effects banish evils from life poverty will cease disease will be almost annihilated by the advance of medical and sanitary science life will be vastly lengthened and made pleasant by inventions and improvements and this will be the kingdom of god on earth from all of which it will be seen that the death of christ on the cross was unnecessary for man's salvation and in fact was only a beautiful example of self-sacrifice as to those who die without reaching this lovely state of life and earth 
there is no provision for them. From this it will be seen that evolution is not only a theory of science, but a religion also, and has obtained as such a wide acceptance. What is called liberalism derives its strength from it. Development is the liberalist's saviour. This theory is formidable, because it originated in the domains of science. The vast and deserved respect in which we hold the deliverances of science has won for this, its favourite theory today, wide acceptance. Evolution has not, however, met the unanimous approval of scholars in the various fields of natural science. Agassiz wrote, quote, I shall therefore consider the transmutation theory as a scientific mistake, untrue in its facts, unscientific in its methods, and mischievous in its tendency. End quote. Dr. Dawson, principal of McGill University, Montreal, writes, quote, The evolutionist doctrine is itself one of the strangest phenomena of humanity. It is destitute of shadow of proof and is supported merely by vague analogies and figures of speech and by the arbitrary and artificial coherence of its own parts. End quote. The Duke of Argyle writes quote, These hypotheses are indeed destitute of proof, and in the form which they have as yet assumed, it may be said that they make such violation of or departure from all that we know of the existing order of things as to deprive them of all scientific base. End quote. Sir Roderick Murchison writes, quote, I know as much of nature in her geologic era as any living man, and I fearlessly say that our geologic record does not afford one syllable of evidence in support of Darwin's theory. End quote. We are met by the assertion that no one is capable of passing upon the merits of this theory or discussing it unless he is schooled in the various fields it explores and technically skilled in its methods of study and experiment. This claim we cannot acknowledge, especially in view of its inroads on scriptural and evangelical faith. We claim that ordinary intelligence is capable of considering its main lines of argument and the objections to them. One may be fully competent to pass upon the merits of money and detect the counterfeit, who knows nothing of the production of bills, good or bad. On the other hand, the technical knowledge required to study in such fields as biology is not necessarily accompanied with the higher order of wisdom which accurately discovers final conclusions. Indeed, it is often the case that the wider outlook is obscured and sometimes perverted by the immediate objects and themes of study, which are no true guide to the general and accurate results. Evolution is confessedly unproven. Its actual operation has never been seen or known. Certain facts are presented, and from these the inference is drawn that development was the process by which all things came, and that there could have been no other way. This is a philosophically false position. Its firmest advocates admit its weakness. Tyndall said in a lecture before the Royal Institution in London in 1887, quote, From the beginning to the end of the inquiry, there is not, as you have seen, a shadow of evidence in favour of the doctrine of spontaneous generation. I am inexorably led to the conclusion that no such evidence exists, and that in the lowest as in the highest of organised creatures, the method of life is that life shall be the issue of antecedent life. End quote. In his Belfast address, he said, quote, Those who hold the doctrine of evolution are by no means ignorant of the uncertainty of their data, and they only yield to it a provisional assent. End quote. Mr. Huxley wrote it down as follows quote, After much consideration, and assuredly no bias against Mr. Darwin's views, it is our clear conviction that, as the evidence stands, it is not absolutely proven that a group of animals, having all the characteristics exhibited by species in nature, has ever been originated by selection, whether artificial or natural. Lay Sermons, New York, 1871, 
page 295. End quote. Dr. Rudolf Schmidt of Württemberg, an advocate of evolution, writes, quote, All these three theories, descent, selection, and development, have not yet passed beyond the rank of hypotheses. End quote. Theories of Darwin, translation, Chicago, 1885, page 61. Yet the whole school of this system are building upon these unproven theories as if they were facts ascertained beyond the shadow of a doubt, and advancing into every sphere of thought and activity and demanding universal acceptance. The nature of the facts adduced and the style of argument used in support of this theory and its conclusions are well illustrated by the following summing up of general conclusions of evolution by Professor Drummond. Quote, Take away the theory that man has evolved from a lower animal condition, and there is no explanation whatever of any one of these phenomena. With such facts before us, it is mocking human intelligence to assume that man has not some connection with the rest of the animal creation, or that the process of development stand unrelated to the other ways of nature. That providence in making a new being should deliberately have inserted these eccentricities without their having any real connection with the things they so well imitate, or any working relation to the rest of his body, is, with our present knowledge, simply irreverence. End quote. The unscientific and unphilosophical assertion that quotes, there is no explanation whatever of any of these phenomena, end quote, except by evolution, is the foundation stone of the whole theory. It is a negative assertion and not a proven fact. The facts alluded to by Professor Drummond are these. The alleged power of newborn babies to hold by a cane or finger so as to permit of being lifted thereby, meanwhile keeping their limbs drawn up. The infant monkey does so also. Of this, Professor Drummond says, quote, There is no explanation whatever, save that man came from the monkey. End quote. Another of these facts is the presence of hair on the human body, especially on the forearms, where it grows in reverse direction to the rest of the body, and long hairs occasionally found in the eyebrows. This also resembles the ape and is, therefore, another irresistible proof to doubt which is irreverence, whether to the ape or man he does not say. The power some persons have of twitching the ears and moving the scalp is a further proof of animal origin, to doubt which is, quote, insulting human intelligence, end quote. There is found in some instances in the neck peculiar marks called gill slits, especially in the embryo. These resemble, in position and in some other respects, the gills of fish, and thus prove that man is descended from the fish. To doubt this is also irreverence and insulting to human intelligence. These are specimens of basal facts, arguments and conclusions of the development theory as stated by one of its most recent and able advocates. We answer the whole by an extract from one of the fathers of evolution more modest in his claims than his disciples. Huxley wrote, quote, No amount of purely morphological evidence can suffice to prove that forms of life have come into existence in one way rather than in another. End quote. Evolution is opposed by vital facts far greater in their force and vastly more fundamental in their character than the correspondences which it rests its claims upon. Some of the facts which resist the assertions of this theory are as follows. 1. Geologic remains often show a reverse order of production to that demanded by this theory. New and great forms appear suddenly, without any intermediate links. Evolution presupposes development inevitably upward, but facts often show the reverse, most of the forms of life in the geologic ages appear at the first, at their best. Today there is no fact better recognised than a tendency to degeneration. 2. 
the extreme length of time demanded by this theory is utterly inconsistent with the age of the earth as evidenced by the action of tides the heat of the earth and of the sun the comparatively recent period of time within which man has appeared on earth as shown by all the evidences of geology ethnology archaeology chronology as well as history is inconsistent with the long period necessary for his development according to this theory three nature shows fixed limits or barriers in organic life hybrids are sterile artificial varieties produced by man disappear when allowed to revert to a state of nature in a state of nature the thing seeks its own proper food and environment and failing to find it perishes each propagates after its own kind and develops unvaryingly on its own lines four no such changes or modifications of species as presupposed by this theory are found or observed in thousands of years of human observation the forms pictured on the monuments of egypt and assyria are precisely such as we have to-day while if this theory were true those forms would in thousands of years have been pushed up so far at least as to permit of measurement or recognition five other fatal objections are thus stated by dr robert patterson quote, natural selection is not a productive force it cannot create but only preserve and therefore could not populate the world natural selection cannot account for organs made or strengthened in opposition to the physical force of the animal many variations are positively injurious to their owners variations are not generally profitable at first and therefore according to this theory could not be preserved anticipatory organs cannot be accounted for by natural selection the improved types do not crowd out the simple forms as this theory requires the accidental occurrence of profitable variations at long intervals of time could not possibly have produced the beautiful adaptations of nature it attributes the elevation of man and of all animals to an agency the struggle for existence which cannot possibly have elevated these higher races since it always has a degrading agency End quote. six this theory confounds two things which differ the development of species and of the individual the facts of the latter it adduces in support of the former such are the facts of embryology and the finding of rudimentary organs or parts or habits of the lower forms in the higher these only prove the development as will be seen later of the individual and the formation of all on a general plan seven history and archaeological discovery condemned by positive facts savage races are races in a state of decay from former higher conditions and not in process of development there is no evidence of advance among such races to-day save as affected by outside influence the chinese have made no progress in thousands of years the hindus save as affected by european civilization have retrograded the pygmies of central africa are just what they were pictured on the tombs of egypt three thousand years ago the ancient civilizations of egypt and assyria and mexico appear at their best at first they have no preparatory stages the more ancient peoples such as the babylonians and persians were more true and reverent than the later greeks the earlier greeks and romans were more advanced in all moral traits than their descendants in the time of christ decline marked the course of all up to the christian era eight there are seven great fundamental facts which evolution has not accounted for and makes no pretence of doing so these are matter motion life consciousness christ christian experience and the future life the demands of evolution upon credulity are far beyond those which scripture asks of faith and are extravagant and absurd an organ as complex and perfect as the eye was it claims 
the product of repeated chance and favourable happenings, continued persistently, and operating on that particular spot during long ages by which it was gradually developed and became the delicate and complex organ it is. The process is thus described. There was a thin spot in the skin of the animal's head. Under this was a cell containing liquid in which was a nerve. The light falling upon this thin place in the skin produced a gratifying sensation and caused the animal to turn that side of its head to the sun. Its progeny inherited the same habit, and their progeny also, and so on indefinitely. By this use, that part became more sensitive to the light, and more and more so. As thus used, and so the sense of sight was aroused or produced, and with it the organ by which sight was exercised was finally and fully developed. There came from this sense of sight ideas of things, as fear at the appearance of enemies and desire at the sight of food, and reasonings accordingly, and all that makes up mind in animals or what corresponds to it, and the full-formed mental power of man, with all his hopes and aims, aspirations, education, civilization, religion, and moral and spiritual character. All this came from the animal turning that thin spot in its head to the sun. We are asked to believe this, and to call it science, and for it to reject the simple and sufficient and noble account of the scriptures. Evolution is wholly unchristian in its spirit. It is a harsh and cruel theory. It sacrifices the individual to the class. It destroys or neglects myriads of creatures to advance one, it looks to the race and takes no account of the individual. It bids him look for his consolation to the advance of the race, ages after he is dead and gone. It teaches the fierce struggle for existence and the survival of the fittest, that is, the strongest. These are the principles of the brute pure and simple. It tells man he came from the brute, then leads him back to the brute, it is diametrically opposed to the divine principle as seen in Christ and his work, which is the welfare of others and not self. Evolution is a relic of heathenism revived and expanded. Quote, in the systems of Greek and Scandinavian mythology, spirit is evolved from matter, matter up to spirit works. They begin with the lowest form of being, night, chaos, a mundane egg, and evolve the higher gods therefrom. End quote. Footnote Ten Great Religions James Freeman Clark End Footnote Evolution in its radical and only consistent form is absolutely atheistic. It needs no god either at the beginning or end of human existence. The basis of it is the fixedness of the natural and its sufficiency to account for all things. Matter is the cause and mind the effect. There was no preconceived plan. All we see is the result of a multitude of chance happenings operating through a vast period of time. There is a modified view of evolution held by many believers in the scriptures that man's body was derived from some animal but his soul imparted by a divine act. This renders the first half of the scripture account figuratively and the second part of the same verse literally. This system of exegesis is vicious in the extreme and violates all rules of literary and scriptural interpretation. By this, any scripture may be made to mean anything. Nor, if evolution is true at all, is there any logical reason why the soul should not be developed as the body was? This is the position of the radical evolutionist and is consistent. Equal evidences can be given for the one as for the other. This halfway acceptance of evolution does by no means relieve the narrative of difficulty. Let anyone try to imagine man being created in this half-and-half -half style. Since the evolutionist is instructing us, we have a right to more definite information than generalizing statements, such as that man was created out of organic dust this long, intricate, and incredible account can by no means be drawn from these words, quote, And God made man in his own image, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, end quote. 
Here are two parts in the process. It was the first which was in the image of God. A beast is not the image of God, no matter what life is imparted to him. The modified view of evolution is exposed to even greater objection than the radical view. The believer in it is on a side hill. He must go up or down. To accept as a method of creation an unproven theory is unsafe in the extreme. It is simply a refuge of lies which time and investigation and the word of God and above all the judgments of God will inevitably sweep away. This theory not only is not taught in Scripture, but cannot by any means be inferred from it. A totally different method of creation is there taught. The two accounts are wholly reconcilable, as those who are consistent believers in either Bible or evolution admit. In fact, a Scripture argument for evolution is never presented. Its consistent follower recognizes Scripture as vitally antagonistic. No one need hesitate when he is offered the choice between the speculations of a confessedly unproven, disjointed and absurd theory and the plain statements of a book which has witnessed the rise and fall of hundreds of conflicting theories, sixty of which it is said the French Academy of Science disposed of in the last hundred years. Why should man turn from the scriptural account of his origin? What is there in it so incredible? Given an almighty God, the necessary predicate of all belief, and all is possible. Nor is there anything demeaning or ignoble in this origin or in the account of it. Better trace our origin to the skies than to the slime of the shore. Better, more noble and more credible, to believe that we are the result of a carefully designed plan and supernatural act, than to believe that there came by a fortuitous concourse of atoms, and along the operation of accidentally and scarcely perceptible happenings, either body or mind of man, and all his faculties and powers, with all education and art and religion. Which is the most credible? Which is the most worthy of man and God? Which furnishes the safest basis for hope here and hereafter? To follow science, falsely so called, into this theory, even in a partial acceptance of it, is to be led by it through labyrinthine wanderings, and into absurd and ruinous predicaments, and in its logical and final analysis, into loss of all faith and hope. The claim that the narratives of Scripture are allegorical is a twin theory to evolution. They are generally held by the same persons, a set of phrases has been adopted to describe and account for the scripture narratives. They are styled idealized history. They are called allegories and poetry. To these terms is attached the modern literary meaning of fiction, a thing unknown in scripture. Nor have they any of the well-known characteristics of the fable, myth, or parable. Neither in the accounts themselves, nor in any other places that they are spoken of, but, on the contrary, they are set forth as veritable narratives, and wherever scripture elsewhere refers to them, it speaks of them so. The silence of the writers of scripture as to there being any doubt of the literal truthfulness of these accounts would, of itself, be sufficient to give us the warrant of their authority. Surely Moses, Solomon, and Paul must have known the truth, yet they never intimated the slightest doubt as to the literalness of any of their narratives. It is the first rule of literary criticism that a writer is to be understood as he intends to be understood, and there is not the first scrap of evidence that they intended to be understood otherwise than literally. But there is greater authority still. We must add to this testimony the witness of him who spake as never man spake, and who said of the future, quote, If it were not so, I would have told you. End quote. It is inconceivable that Christ would have left us in error as to these facts, knowing as he did that we should have to meet them in these latter days. We will examine what he did say about the truth of the Old Testament narratives. Christ spoke of the creation which God created. 
he specifically mentions the creation of man the story of the murder of abel the account of the flood he mentions abraham he certifies to the narrative of the destruction of sodom and gomorrah the giving of the manna as narrated the story of the brazen serpent david elijah and elisha and their miracles particularly the healing of naaman and the story of jonah and the whale all of these he verifies as literally true events we can claim also christ's testimony for the events not specifically mentioned it is inconceivable that christ would have verified parts of these books and remained silent as to parts not true or real he taught from it and drew his teachings from it and lived the life there predicted for him and obeyed its precepts in all this he affirms its truth he quoted from nearly half the books of the scriptures he mentions several by name as we have them he refers to the whole in a single statement all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of moses and the prophets and the psalms concerning me these were the three parts into which the jews divided the scriptures and include what we have to-day he never once intimates that any of these were other than they claim to be jesus stands by the old testament scriptures and holds himself responsible for their historical accuracy and divine origin the apostles follow in the same regard for the scriptures they everywhere affirm their truth and rest their doctrines upon it further seldom is there any argument or reason advanced for rejecting the literal interpretation of these narratives it seems to be merely a matter of taste and prejudice the rejected narratives are those which deal with ignoble or at least familiar things such as the serpent in the fall the whale part of jonah's history the swine in the miracle of gadara it is a characteristic of ignorance to doubt exceptional occurrences in matters of everyday life while accepting others far more incredible but beyond the range of observation we expect this in ignorant people but we do not expect it in the class advancing these objections yet this is the basis on which rests this whole position any one who can believe jesus christ rose from the dead ought logically to have no hesitation in accepting any other narrative in scripture yet some who profess to believe this stupendous occurrence hesitate at these comparatively simple narratives this is illogical and inconsistent there are but two consistent courses accept all or reject all end of chapter two part one